Welcome back to Lost in Citations. Today's guest is Naomi Sweller, an associate professor of psychology at Macquarie University. Dr. Sweller, how are you? I'm well, thank you. How are you? I'm doing quite well. Today's article is The Effects of Observing and Producing Gestures on Japanese Word Learning, and this was accepted April 2020. So that's a pretty quick turnaround. There weren't many revisions or major changes no. you had to do? No, that's right. Although this was the work of um, a student of mine from several years ago, Aya, the second author. And so we'd gone backwards and forwards a few times um, from her initial thesis before we submitted it for the first time to, to polish it up and, and shorten it. This was a PhD student? No, an honours student. So that's the fourth year of a psychology training degree in Australia. Okay. And who was the third author? Um, she's an ex-PhD student of mine and she co-supervised Aya. Okay. Oh, so, so at Macquarie, if you're a university, your fourth year university student, you can submit for publication? Yeah, that's right. So the fourth year, the honours year, um, they run their own research project um, on a topic that's decided between the student and the supervisor. And it's written up as a thesis um, at the end of the year, depending on the, the findings and depending on the interest of the um, supervisor and the student, then yes, it can be submitted. It can be written up and submitted as a publication. So this is only for honours students? Um. Others can run studies, um, but it tends to be the honours students. So the, most of that year is the research project. So they do some coursework, but they do do um, uh, 60% of their year is a thesis. And so they, they tend to run quite good studies. And, and then, yeah, it's possible for them to, to write it up after that. Now, is this all students or just students that are in the social sciences and the sciences? Are oh, all, that's a good question. All... Yeah, because yeah, this is a little no, bit of a different system than America. Right, right. It does depend. It depends on the university and it also depends on the discipline. So um, for psychology students across Australia, the um, Australian Psychological Society, um, in order for them to um, get their four-year psychology degree, the Australian Psychological Society, the APS, says, yes, they have to do a research project. So that's Australia-wide. Um, but it's that that's just for psychology students. So some disciplines will have honours degrees, others won't. Um, some universities, different disciplines will have them, um, whereas others won't. Um, whereas for psychology, uh, because of what the APS um, stipulates, it's, it's all fourth-year students. So these fourth-year honours students, they're all assigned an individual supervisor? That will also vary university to university. At Macquarie, yes, and at most universities, yes. Sometimes it will be a group project, but that's pretty rare. So that would be where there's a handful of students um, together working with one supervisor, but normally it's one-on-one. -on -one. So I might have multiple students myself, multiple honours students, but um, they would all be doing their own research project. Well, how, how does that process work? Are you assigned a certain number of students at the beginning of the year yeah, that's right. So um, we get assigned students based on hopefully overlapping areas of um, research interest. Um, and then in January, we'll meet up. So the, the academic year starts in January and it finishes in October for these students. Um, they submit their thesis in October. And so in January, we'll sit down together and we'll talk about, you know, what topics are you interested in? What topics am I able to supervise? And we'll come up with a topic together. And from there, we'll design the study 
together and then the student typically runs it themselves. Wow, that's 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 really great. I mean, I, I feel like I can just go into our, our relationship. So you are my supervisor in mm-hmm. my in my master's of research in psych, in psychology. And so yes. then I'm gonna be finishing my master's of research once the world goes back to normal, hopefully. Because because <laughs> all data yes. Face-to-face data collections are on pause, of course. Um, yes. And then I'm going to transition to the the PhD, uh, maintaining mm-hmm. the same the same supervisors I have with the uh, masters in research. So, are you saying that you 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 supervise some of these students that are honors students, fourth year honor students, and then would some of these students stay with you through the masters yeah. of research and the PhD? That's right. So the third author on this paper that we're talking about today, Elizabeth Austin, was my honours student and she decided that she was enjoying um, the research area. So she continued on to do a PhD with me as well. Wow. What's, what's, what's that like? Are you, so you're, I guess you're, you're meeting these students in sort of a really personal way their fourth year, but I guess you're familiar with them through some classwork or are, are you only meeting them when they get to uh, the fourth well. year? In my case, it's a little more complicated because I also teach the fourth year statistics unit for the honours students. So I'm with them in two capacities then. So I teach the whole cohort of honours students their statistics coursework unit. Um, And then for my own students, which is normally about two a year, um, sometimes three, but normally two, then I work more closely with them on their own research topic. And so we'll normally meet weekly. And yeah, we work very closely together. Um, it's It's a great year. Now, for for students like me who are coming in as a second year master's in research, who are like a student like me who I'm I've just turned forty, um, and then so I'm kind of coming back to my studies way later and like sort of a way different track than what we just mentioned. Someone maybe continuing with you from fourth year to master's to PhD. How many of those students do you get that are sort of coming back later in life that are starting on their master's in research or or starting on their PhD? Uh, like yeah. coming back. Not as many as we get going straight through, but that's also a peculiarity of psychology. So other fields, they do tend to get more students who are returning after having done other things. So for example, I'm associate supervisor for quite a few students in education who are doing um, PhDs in education. And in, in, in that field, they tend to go out and be teachers for um, mm. you know, possibly a couple of decades and then come back mm. and do a PhD. In psychology, they tend to you do, do, um, you do get that uh, similar to in, in your situation now, but um, it is, it's, it's more rare, so they do tend to go straight through um, the majority of them. How long have you been supervising students? Um, oh, good question. I for 10 years, about 10 years. Now, what's that like? Because I, I have to be honest. Um, I, I'm hoping one day I will finish my PhD. So I'm, 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 sort I'm of sure you gi- will. Give, I'm giving that. Uh, uh, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm hedging my my bet. I, I wasn't going to say when I, 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 one day I hope to finish my PhD. When I do, <laughs> I, I, I think I'd be very uh, hesitant to be an advisor. Now, I, the the job that I might have at that time might still be in Japan, and 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 I wouldn't be it wouldn't be part of my job requirement to be an advisor. I think part of me would, would say, okay, when I finish this project after four or five years, maybe I would have some insights to help people. But I, at this stage going in, I, I just couldn't even imagine. Did you, did you reach a point where you 
you were finishing your PhD and you thought, oh, wow, I'm going to be an advisor soon. I don't know how I feel about that. Were you excited about being an, an advisor? Has it has has your opinion about being an advisor changed over the years? Mm, so I didn't go straight from my PhD to being an advisor. There were a few um, interim years between there. So I finished my PhD and then I had two postdoctoral positions. Um, so I finished my PhD in 2007, but it wasn't until... 2010 that I supervised students on my own for the first time. Um, so I did get a bit more experience following the PhD before that. Um, and then I started by supervising honours students. So these are um, so the, these sort of self-contained nine or 10 month projects. And I didn't start supervising um, PhD students for another couple of years after that. Um, but what I do for my own students is my PhD students will, I, I mentor them to help them supervise. So Elizabeth Austin, the third author on this paper, she was my PhD student. And I mentored her to help her. We sort of co-supervised Aya, the honours student, um, so that Elizabeth could learn um, the supervision process from the other side. So she knew what it was like as a student, but to see what it's like from the supervisor's point of view. So I think it would be difficult to, like you say, it's intimidating to suddenly um, think, oh, you know, now I have to be on the other side. Um, I think it's good to take that a little bit more slowly and I think it's helpful for um, for the students to be mentored through that process rather than just thrown in the deep end. So you said you did two postdoctoral uh, programs. So can, yes. can you explain to people uh, what what, the, what that is and, and what, and what yeah. you did for those two programs? Yeah, absolutely. So the first one um, was working on, this is in a research field that I don't do anything with anymore. I was working on a um, project um, with the fire brigades um, and it was looking at various procedures um, and tasks um, that they were running. And so that was a fairly short term one. I was there for, I, I started working there while I was still finishing up my PhD um, and then continued there for a little bit after that. So all up, I think I did that one for about 18 months. Then I had a three-year one um, at Macquarie University, and that was in um, early childhood, um, developmental sorts of things. And um, one of my roles there was um, as a statistical advisor. So I did a lot of stats with helping other people, analyzing um, data on a big longitudinal project, um, looking at the childcare choices that families make and um, also running my own research there as well. But so that one took me um, – that was closer to my own inherent interests in developmental psychology. So during that time, you're, you're, you're getting a, a sal like the first one, when you're working for the fire brigade brigade, you were getting a salary from the fire brigade or you're getting a salary uh, from no. some, somewhere else. Yeah. So the fire brigade was part of a grant that my boss um, had received. Uh, and that grant was partly funded by the fire brigade and partly by the Australian government. Um, and that money went to the university. Um, this was at the University of Sydney. And then I was paid by the University of Sydney. Um, the second one that I had was partly it was a government grant as well to my boss at Macquarie Uni um, from the Department of Community Services. And I was but I, but I was then paid by the university. Now, while you're in these two postdoc programs, did did it cross your mind that oh, I kind of want to do this as a career and maybe go into the private sector? Um, 
I didn't – going into the private sector was always in the back of my mind, but more as a this is another option for me rather than this is my first priority. So I um, very much wanted an academic career, um, and I, those postdoctoral positions were academic positions, although, uh, you know, short-term contract positions. Um, but I sort of saw them as stepping stones towards hopefully at one point getting a tenured position myself. Um Leaving academia wasn't wasn't ever my first priority. Well, let, let's back up because this is, this is something we haven't talked about on the show, and we're we we've uh, interviewed a few people from Australia. For people that don't know about the Australian system, so let's back up to high school. Mm-hmm. Um, there's there's something in Australia called the what the HS HSC. Uh-huh. Yes, so in New South Wales we have the HSC, which is the high school certificate. Um, other states have a similar um, final year. So I think in Victoria it's the VCE. I can't remember what that stands for. The V is for Victorian. Um, maybe certificate of education, something like that. All, but all um, states will have their own final um, final year of high school. Um, uh, that's a series of exams they do, and what comes out of it at the end is a number, um, and that number is basically a ranking within Australia for each student. And based on wow. that number, that partly determines what university courses you can get into. Now, when you're doing your HSC, it's it's specialized, right? Because when I was living in Australia, I was teaching uh, music at some of these um, private private schools like um, MLC. Uh-huh. And mm-hmm. I forget a, f- a few other. They were sort of like high-ranking private school. The tuition was it was like in- insanely expensive. Right, I remember that. <laughs> they are. Um, yes, yes. Uh, and then there was the mu- mu- you know, musicians who were doing an HSC in music, and mm. it was essentially like a university-level you know recital. I mean, it was really intense. Um, so I, I was curious at that point: it, it, are, are students almost majoring? Because we would call it majoring in America, like you, you have your specialization comes when you get to university and you pick your major. I think you have to pick your major by year two. Some people pick, mm. you know, before that. So what, what's going? Like, it, do you do you have to specialize in two or three things, or how how does that work? Yeah, so you do get to choose which subjects you do, and. Um... Interesting that you taught music at MLC because that's a school that's actually very well known for its music, so well done to you. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so the students will tend to do subjects that interest them and that might lead towards university degree that they want to do. So, for example, if you want to go into engineering, it would be expected that you would do high-level maths and science subjects such as physics, chemistry. Um, If you wanted to do a university degree in um, history, it's expected that you would study history for the HS. Um, For psychology, there were no prerequisite subjects um, that I had to do specifically. Um, So I did a range of different subjects um, that interested me for a variety of of, of reasons, not specifically to get me into a certain um, university course. But you do have to do um, a variety of subjects um, for your HSC. So you were eyeing psychology? Mm, I was. um, From about Oh, the age of 16 or 17, I thought that was what interested me Interested me the most. Why is that? Um, that's an excellent question, and you're dredging my memory back to being a teenager. Um, I think I was interested 
I was very interested in learning and how people learn, but at the age of 18, fresh out of high school, I actually wanted to be a clinical psychologist and I wanted to go out there and um, and help people. And throughout my undergraduate degree, so the first three years of my psychology degree, that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to be a clinical psychologist. Um, I did a bit of work experience in that field and I learned a lot about myself in the process and I realized that I didn't think that at a personal level I could actually cope with that career. I thought it would, um, I thought it would actually be detr- detrimental to me um, emotionally and for my own, you know, mental health. And so I, well, no, I, I then did my honours year. So this is the fourth year, which is a compulsory um, research uh, topic. Um, and I found I loved the research. And so all of a sudden there was a another arm of psychology open to me that I hadn't considered previously. And so having found through the work experience that I didn't think I was cut out for clinical psychology, but I was really enjoying um, the research, that's when I decided on a research career. But that's not what I started the degree doing. And as a high school student, that's not what I intended to do. That's interesting. So I did a I did another interview with um David Matsumoto, who who's um pretty famous for uh, emotions, emotion studies. He did he did research on comparing you know how Japanese and Americans uh, emote, and mm-hmm. um, he I interviewed him and he said the exact same thing. So he was doing his you know his PhD in psych, in psychology and he was doing some some work experience, and then he decided he just didn't want to be a clinical psychologist and like kind of just like what you said when he when he was looking at the data he said oh this is this is something that's more interesting interesting to me you know running tests and, and then analyzing the data and he found his calling more that way yeah. is that something that you you find very common in when you are cuz now you're on the other side and you're the advisor do you, do you find you know people might have an idea they want to be a psychologist and, and then they 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 sort of veer off course once they get that work experience yeah i think um I think clinical psychology can be a lot more personally challenging than a lot of people realize it will be um, before they actually do it. Um, And I also think research can be a lot more interesting than people realize before they try it for themselves as well. Um, But one thing that is quite common is to do both. And so you can do a combined um, PhD, so you get the research qualification, as well as a um, coursework master's degree, which will give you the professional qualification to become a psychologist, which is what I didn't do. Um, and that's incredibly common. So a PhD student of mine who actually just had her thesis accepted last week, which was fantastic, um, she wow. did the combined PhD with a Master's of um, Clinical Neuropsychology. Um, so she's got both, um, which is a fantastic wow. career choice as well. All right. So then you went you went to the University of Sydney? Uh, no, uh, New your... South Wales. My postdoc was at Sydney, but New South Wales was my was where I studied, yep. And then, so you're, okay, so you're from Sydney? I am, yes. I haven't gone very far, okay. sadly. <laughs> where did you, no, no, it's a, I think it's a great, a great city, especially for education. Where, where did you go to uh, high school, if you don't mind my asking? No, that's okay. I went to Sydney Girls High School. Oh, wow. Okay. Well then, oh, so you're super smart. The, <laughs> the Sydney, the Sydney Girls is, when I was living, when I was living in Australia and, um, before we moved, my, my wife and I were saying, you know, wouldn't it be great if, uh, if, cause I was teaching at a lot of the private schools like MLC and I, I, my, my memories just, I can't remember. I was teaching at four or five. 
wow. and they were all amazing. They were, and but I also taught at the uh, Sydney Boys. I had a couple oh, students there. Yeah, <laughs> and so um, they were just great, and I, I love I loved that environment because it was a merit based. Um, application and it seemed like there were students from all different backgrounds there and it was all merit-based and I, I loved the environment there I didn't I didn't go over to the, the girls side but that's an interesting school because you have the Sydney boys and the Sydney girls and the campus yeah. is right next door to each other that's um, right and, so it's, it's, and they're, they're very similar atmosphere and so on well what, what's that what's that dynamic like because you have the all-girls schools and there's there's um you know, pros and cons to that sort of education, right? Um, yeah, I, I would say there are a lot of there are a lot of pros. I, I would say uh, there are more pros to all girls schools than all boys schools. That's just my own personal opinion. Um, yes, but there are also yes. some 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 cons. What? But with you, you you kind of had this this interesting system where you have the all boys school and the all girls school, but they're right next to each other. I and I'm guessing <laughs> you you interacted with. The, the 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 boy yes. students as well. How did that work? Yes, not during classes. So all the classes are separate. They're two completely separate schools, different principal, different teachers. But we had the same school buses, so that was one of the main times when we could actually interact <laughs> with each other. And they do share between the two schools. There's a um, green grassy area where the the students can you know have lunch together and so on if they like. Um, but not as much interaction as you might expect. <laughs> given the schools are right next to each other because all the classes are separate. And so that that's a school from year seven to year 12. That's right. right? Yeah, just high school. Yeah. I, I love that. I love that about Australia. I, I think that's so great because you can link a curriculum so well, like MLC did with their music program. They had a very clear idea what they wanted, how they wanted to to help someone from year seven to year 12, where mm. in my experience, you know, you have your middle school and then you go to high school and Sometimes, the, like, for example, if I'm thinking in music, I remember the high school music teacher disagreed with the middle school. You know, they, the, the curriculums uh -huh. didn't really align. They didn't have a, a track. So I think that's a really good thing about um, the Australian education system. I don't know if it's the same in the UK, um, that 7 to, to 12 sort of system. I'm not sure. No, I don't know what they uh, do there. No, I'm not sure. So, all right. So then, but to get into the, the Sydney girls, you have to pass a test when you're – is it year yes, five that was, or year six? Uh, year six, year six. So the last year of primary school, you sit um, a battery of tests. There were was an English test, a maths test, and then a general reasoning test, I think. Um, uh, and it's purely marks-based. So if you are in the top however number of students, you're offered a place. Um, and, yeah, I liked that about it too, actually, that it's not um, – it doesn't. Um, it doesn't matter what part of Sydney you're from. It doesn't matter. I mean, you could come from anywhere around the country, I guess. Um, uh, it's just purely based on your marks. Did you Did you start preparing for that in year four and year five? I heard some people do that, or some parents do that. I didn't do any private tutoring, but I did do. I've got memories of doing practice test after after practice test at home. <laughs> so yes, I was preparing for it from around year five or earlier in year six, just doing practice tests. Is this something you wanted to do? Now we're going to get into the paper here um, in a second, but this is interesting I, to me. Oh, that's okay. this, <laughs> no, yeah. not a problem at all. No worries. Um, I did, but also a lot of my friends were going, so that helped. That well, we didn't know we were going, but a lot of um, girls that I knew from primary school were all aiming to go there. Um, and I just wanted to go with my friends. I was fairly painfully shy. So going to a school where I didn't know anybody <laughs> was a terrifying prospect. So I wanted to go wherever they were going. Um, but also my parents were very keen for me to go um, because 
the, the other options if I didn't go there were either a local um, public school, which they didn't like, um, not because it was a local public school, but that, but the particular school that I would have got fed into just based on geography where we lived, um, they didn't want to send me to. And the other alternative was one of these very expensive private schools, which they didn't want to pay for. <laughs> so, right. so Sydney Girls seemed the best option. Um, and fortunately, um, I got in, but yeah, otherwise it was you, private. How did, how did you find it? Um, did, did yeah, you, so was it a difficult I, transition? Like, no, yeah. it's, it, I think people did deal with it very differently and it depends very much on the individual because it's a fairly intense atmosphere in that you've got girls coming from all over Sydney who all scored above this certain mark. And for some people, um, they met like-minded friends for the first time and so it was a great atmosphere. For others, they found it a little too intense, a little too competitive um, and they didn't enjoy it so much. I personally loved it. I had a great time um, uh, both socially and academically. I think it was really good for me. Um, but there were certainly girls there who – I mean, it's a peculiar atmosphere because it's pulling people from all over um, – well, whoever sat the test, so all over Sydney um, – You'll get girls coming in who are the only ones coming in from their primary school and they may have been at the top of everything in their primary school and then all of a mm -hmm. sudden they're thrown into high school where they're just the same as everybody else. And I think sometimes that was really confronting and socially that can be very difficult for them if they feel like, oh, but I used to be the best at this and now I'm not and, oh, I'm not good enough and or something like that. Um, so I think it can be a very confronting um, atmosphere in that way but personally um i really enjoyed it why why did you decide on uh university of new south wales there's four <laughs> or five really good universities in sydney right yes absolutely um unfortunately for possibly not the best reason but it was just geography i lived in um bondi <laughs> <laughs> it was close. Okay. <laughs> um, so I, um, my choices were, my first choice was um, UNSW because it was the closest. My next option was Sydney because it was the next closest. <laughs> <laughs> because I was 18 or 17 at that point making decisions and possibly not. I mean, as it happens, um, I, I'm glad I went where I did and I think I got a, a great education. I don't regret it for a minute. Um, but there are probably better reasons to make these decisions rather than geography. <laughs> so you did your uh, your undergraduate and your master's at University of New South Wales and then you did your PhD at Sydney? Uh, no, I don't have a master's. Um, so oh, I went okay. straight from honours to the PhD. So it's a, it's a peculiar oh, – okay. so what you're doing, the Masters of Research, mm -hmm. um, Macquarie requires and some other universities require. Some universities don't. And, in fact, Macquarie didn't um, up until about five or six years ago. Um, it mm -hmm. used to be, and in most places around Australia, that you could go straight from your honours degree to your PhD. And so that's what I did. Um, UNSW didn't have a master's that I had to get before the PhD. So I did – and I did do my PhD at UNSW as well. So I did my four-year um, undergraduate, including honours, and then the um, PhD both at UNSW. Oh, I see. Okay. And then you told me before that the mas the, the master's in research thesis is like an honours thesis on steroids. That's what you – That's how you describe it. Right. Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. So they're both done in the same time frame. If you're full time, it's done in about a nine or ten month period. Um, 
the only the only difference really between the masters of research and the honors is that the masters of research doesn't have any coursework so the honors students need to do a statistics unit that's the one that i teach they also do um, an ethics and professional practice unit and they do a couple of electives as well um, whereas the masters um, they don't there's no coursework so you've got more time to dedicate just to the research um, and the other thing that makes it perhaps a bit more on steroids is that um, they tend to be the more the, the, they're either mature age students um, who have done other things in between, or they've already got an honours degree. So it's perhaps not not the first um, research project they've been running. Um, whereas the honours students tend to be um, twenty one year olds who have come straight through. They've never done any research before, and so the expectations are slightly lower. But it's a similar scope. Be- yeah, and in some of um the the papers that that I'm writing, you you've given me some samples of some of your previous students, and I've noticed mm. that some of those samples have revolved around gestures. So yes, um, I guess we're going to jump into the paper again. The paper is the effects of observing and producing gestures on Japanese word learning. Is this now again all the papers you've sent me as samples have have revolved around gestures is this something that you're sort of the specialist in and and can you give me a little bit of background why you ended up focusing on gestures or at least advising people on gestures yeah so that's my main research area i do publish a lot in other fields but they tend to be in conjunction with other people who might be um, the brains behind the project so to speak most of my the research projects that i'm um, conceptualizing and running myself um and with my students, like you say, tend to be around gesture. So my own honours project um, when I was at UNSW was on gesture. And I quite enjoyed that, but I decided not to follow that topic for my PhD. I did something completely different for my PhD. Um, but then I realised I actually missed that work and I, I had found it quite interesting. Um, and so once I got my own academic position and I could choose what research areas I wanted to follow, I went back um into the area of gesture. And what w- what brought you to gesture to begin with? It's just, to begin with? I mean, it's a, it, it's an interesting topic, right? Um, and, but it's something that I never would have thought to, oh, I want to study gesture. It's just one of the, <laughs> right. now that I'm reading your paper, it is interesting. And it's all these things are like, I'm, I feel like I'm aware of them and I can see how they can apply to many different things, but it never, it just never crossed my mind. Oh, this is something that I would re- really want to do a deep dive on. Like, why did you become so Absolutely. interested in it? <laughs> Absolutely fair question. And it was because of my supervisor. So when I mentioned before at the beginning of the year with the honours students, you sit down and you talk about what topics you might be interested in and what topics you could supervise. Basically, my I sat down with my supervisor um, and she said, well, I can work in this topic or that topic. Um, and gesture was one of them. And of the topics that she gave me, that was the one that um, I thought would be the most interesting. Um, But it wasn't anything that I had thought about before that year either. Because I was wondering if you had a history of someone uh, knowing sign language or if you you had friends who are hearing impaired or something. No, not at all. It purely came from my honor supervisor who suggested it. I had no background whatsoever in sign language or anything of that ilk. Has your research ever overlapped with um, hearing impaired uh, communication? 
Mine hasn't personally, but a lot of gesture research does. Um, sign language, uh, and a lot of um, academics will research both. Sign language tends to be a little bit different from gestures in that it's um, it's uh, very it's much more structured. So there are certain signs which will mean certain words. And although that can be the case with gestures, the sorts of gestures that I'm talking about tend to be a bit more um, uh, spontaneous and free-flowing. And so you might use multiple different types of gestures to indicate the same thing in different ways depending on you know, just what you happen to produce at the time, um, whereas sign language um, will have um, particular signs that are used in particular situations. I see. So right now, are you waving your arms around as we're talking? <laughs> Embarrassingly, yes, I do. <laughs> I don't know whether it's cause and effect of I research gesture and therefore I gesture more, but I, <laughs> I am a chronic gesture. I do wave my arms around even when nobody's watching. <laughs> That's interesting. So when you, as a, as a teacher now, do you, do you find that you're gesturing more in class because you're researching? Like you said, maybe it's hard to know. You said you were, you were horrib not horribly shy. Well, I don't remember the adjective. You said you were very shy when you were younger. Yes. So I, I, yes, it's probably I hard was. to imagine you you know flailing around back then. But is it when, <laughs> when did you decide? Well, I don't know whether I flailed around back then, to be honest. I can't remember. Um, and if I did, I probably wouldn't have noticed it either because until my honours year, I'd never given gestures a moment's thought. So no idea what I did when I was younger. Um, I'm definitely more extroverted now, but I also definitely do wave my arms around a lot. And you're, yes, you're right. When I teach, I I do, I do do that more. And I missed that this past semester when all our classes moved online. Um, I very much miss that interactive part and I would often find myself trying to explain something with my hands and catching myself saying, no, no, the students can't see you. <laughs> Stop it, mm. Naomi. <laughs> um, but yes, I think it's got a um, big implications for teaching as well. Wow. Okay. All right. So this, this is a paper that's focusing on gesture and uh, introducing gestures to students and then testing whether it affects their short-term recall with Japanese word learning. Is that is that pretty much a good uh, overview? Yeah, that's absolutely right. Now why why did you choose why did you choose Japanese? Uh, because of my student Aya is Japanese. And she chose, she was interested in – she's a native Japanese speaker from Japan, learned English as a second language. Um, and so she was interested in foreign language learning. Um, and so for her, the obvious language to look at was Japanese. All right. So in this in this study, you chose 10 words. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. That's right. And there were yep, 10, 10 verbs. verbs. Yep. It's interesting. I was looking, I was looking at the words um, – there, the eight of them I would say are extremely common, but nageru and tsuneru. So tsuneru to pinch, I'd never heard that one before, and nageru ah. to throw, I don't, I don't really use. But I could see how. So I, I so you're for the English. You're using pinch, pull, talk, eat, push, write, drink, cut, read, run, throw. These are very easy words to produce as you would call an iconic gesture? Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. that's right. So an iconic gesture is a gesture which has a concrete meaning that's associated with um, the word in question or the phrase in question. So, um, for example, if I – and it can be a verb like this. So if I'm saying um, 
uh, drink. It could be miming, lifting your hand up, miming drinking, or it could be a noun. So I could be talking about, um, you know, the boy um, had a ball and um, uh, forming a sphere with my hand. So we, we used all of those iconic gestures. And then in the paper, you, you talk about gesture classification where you have iconic, metaphoric, beat, and dialectic. Mm-hmm. Um, mm. I think people probably understand beat, but can you just give a maybe a little bit of a overview of metaphoric and is it diectic? Diectic, yeah. Well, pronounce it however you like, I guess. But yes, yeah. I say diectic. I could be wrong. Um, so metaphoric gestures are like iconic in that they depict um, something with some kind of um, imagery, but it won't be um, something concrete. So it would be much more abstract. So, for example, if I said, um, you know, the grades went up or his grades went up and I pushed my hand up in the air to indicate something going up. Now, someone's grades don't physically rise up into the air. Um, But in in an abstract way, I'm depicting them going up. Um, Or if I'm depicting, you know, if I'm talking about the scales of justice and I'm moving my two hands up and down next to each other, you know, in opposite directions to to depict scales. So they're not things that really exist concretely in the real world, um, but we can um, portray them in a more abstract way. Um, A deictic gesture is just pointing. So showing a direction. So he went left and you point to the left or um, she went that way. Or, oh, look, there's a spider, and I point towards the spider. Um, So we've got the iconics that are sort of concrete images, um, the metaphorics that are abstract images, the deictics that are pointing um, or indicating a direction, um, and then the beats that are just a sort of a flick or some kind of rhythmic movement with the hands just for emphasis. Now, in your in your background, there, there's a few things I, I noticed, which I liked. Uh, one of these sentences you wrote, examinations of written recall only are restricted in their gener- generaliz- generalizability. Sorry, I can't read. Gener- generalizability? Yes. However, as, as language is used in both written and verbal formats, I, I really like that because, especially in Japan, a lot of the, the junior high school and high school education is focused just on reading and writing just because the college entrance exam is only based on reading and writing. And there's mm-hmm. been some movement to try to change it to, to um, a speaking examination. But I think that's mm-hmm. a really good point to try to link the, you know, that, the, the, yeah, the, the, there is a language where you have to speak and then connect, connecting these through gestures is maybe a useful way for not, not only for people to learn, but for people to communicate. Is that is that something that you've been uh, thinking about a lot in your gesture right. research? Yeah. So um, most of what we're looking at in gesture is some kind of um, a communicational learning. That's what mo- most of my research has been on. And I tend to do um, sort of a learning phase and then a testing phase because I'm looking at the effects of the gesture during the learning phase. Um, the testing phase I tend to do as a verbal test. Um for two reasons. Firstly, in you know, in this case with the Japanese word learning, I think it's got a level of ecological validity in that if an English speaker is learning to speak Japanese, chances are at least one of the things they're going to want to do with that is to speak it, not just to write it. Mm. Um, the other reason, though, is a lot of my research is done with children, and so asking them to write is probably not a fair um, a measure of their actual knowledge because they haven't learnt properly to write. So with little kids, certainly, we're pretty much doing um, verbal recall. 
All right. So can you give the um, give the overview of of how you ran the test? You you had you had your your participants watch a video. Is that mm -hmm. is that right? That's right. You... So um, there was a, a narrator, um, uh, and it was Aya herself actually, because she could do the correct Japanese pronunciation. She had the right accent. Um, so she was. Um, she recorded a whole lot of videos of herself explaining these words um, and their translations. Um, and some of the videos she produced the iconic gesture while she um, presented the words, and some of them she didn't. And so we um, randomly allocated the participants to watch either a video with no gestures or a video with the gestures where Aya produced the gestures. And so we were hoping that they would learn more, that they would remember more when the gestures accompanied um, the, the, the verbal words. And then of the people who saw the gestures, we got half of them to um, also produce the gestures themselves. So they were reproducing, they were mimicking the gestures um, that Aya was producing. And so we ended up with three groups. We had people who um, saw the gestures but didn't reproduce them. We had people who saw the gestures and they also reproduced them. Just This was during the learning phase. And then we had people who saw no gestures. Mm -hmm. And so those were our three groups. And we were looking at the recall um, of, the, of the Japanese verbs between those three groups. And then your your testing, you mm -hmm. you did. Uh, can you can you describe your? This is on page four where you you okay. talked about the different tests that you gave. You had a verbal response, you had immediate memory test, free recall, cued recall, delayed memory test, and then gesture production. Right. So we there were there was an immediate test which was during the same session as the okay. learning phase and mm -hmm. there was a delayed test that was one week later so they came back into the lab and they did the same recall test again and so within each of those there were sort of three different phases first of all there was free recall so they were just asked um, to recall as many of the japanese verbs with their translations as they could with no kind of prompting whatsoever and once they'd remembered as many as they could, there were then two cued recall tests. One of them was where they were given all the Japanese words and asked what was the English translation, and one of them where they were given all the English words um, and asked what was the Japanese translation. So okay. the, um, the free recall was always done first so that there was no prompting um, from the cued ones, and then they did the two cued tests. And that was the same at both immediate and delayed. And did you did you cue people to do gestures or do you Not just observe test. them okay no that's a really good point so during training yes for the for the condition where they were um instructed to reproduce the condition uh, reproduce the gestures sorry then yes during training they were told to but at test nobody was given any instructions about gesture now during the test you noticed people producing gestures automatically they did they did yep without even being told to and now, it was how... more so Sorry. Okay. No, go ahead. Uh, more so the people who had seen the gestures um, during training and more so, again, those who had reproduced them during training tended to produce them more at test. Now, this is something that you observed and then you marked down watching the video. That's right. So we coded them all afterwards, all the videos afterwards. So everybody was um, audio and video recorded at the time um, and we coded them all afterwards. 
So one of your findings was that some people produced the correct gesture, but they didn't, they didn't have the, they couldn't recall the, the meaning. Is that something you found? Um, well, it's, it's possible that sometimes people might remember one of the words, um, say so perhaps they remember the English word. Oh, I, I'm sure I was taught the word for drink. Mm -hmm. But they couldn't rec they couldn't remember the translation, and in that case, we didn't give them the mark for it. I see. Okay. Well, what, what did you? How did you find? You know, watching the people making the gesture. So, in in your in your background and in your your sort of mini lit review, you talked about how gesturing can be related to cognition. And one thing that I found interesting with my own research is how language learning anxiety sort of affects cognition because it, it can trigger task irrelevant thinking. And so yeah. what you were, you were saying is that gesturing actually does the opposite where it focuses cognition on the task at hand and it's linking the, the gestures to the cognition. So did you find that the, the, the group that were cued to make gestures did you find that some of them were, were, were making the gestures to try to trigger the cognition? Did you, did, is that Sometimes something that you were looking at? Sometimes they do. Sometimes they do. So um, that can help them um, to recall. And uh, not my paper, but a previous paper was sort of talking about the tip of the tongue phenomenon where you sort of know something's on the tip of the tongue. You, I, mm -hmm. I can't remember it. I, I know I know this word, but it's not coming out. Um, and sometimes the gestures may, may help with that. That's not hugely common, but it does happen. So what was your what was your hypothesis going into it? So we were expecting that overall the group that didn't see any gestures would perform the most poorly. So we thought that observing the gestures um, would be beneficial to learning. So remember there were two groups that saw the gestures. Some of them just watched them. Some of them watched them and reproduced them. And we saw that overall um, those two groups would do better than the no gesture sort of control condition that didn't see any gestures. And then within those two groups, we expected that those who reproduced the gestures would perform better than those who only saw the gestures because there's previous research showing that producing gestures is beneficial for learning. Mm -hmm. um, but we didn't get that. So we yeah, found well, that yeah, – sorry. Ahead. No, so ahead, we yeah. found that, um, yeah, so the, the two gesture conditions, the observe and the reproduce, did do better, as we thought they would, than the no gesture control condition, but there was actually no difference between the um, the reproduce and the observe conditions. They were equally good at test. What, why, why do you think that, why do you think that was? Um, could be a few reasons for it. Um, I mean... One of the things is that if the if, if observing the gestures sort of produced enough of a mental image, I guess, for the participants in and of itself, producing the gestures would do nothing um, beyond that. Um, um, but we also did there was some uh, we did some fairly complicated analyses which. Um, suggested that perhaps at least some of the time producing the gestures might have been detrimental, which is absolutely not what we were expecting. Yeah. Why, um, why, why is that? So this was a funny one, and it was absolutely not what we were expecting to find whatsoever. Um, we thought that observing the – so, so it's been shown before that observing gestures is beneficial for learning and also that producing gestures is beneficial. Mm -hmm. 
for learning. Now, when I'm talking here about producing gestures, that can happen at two different time points. In this study, it can happen either during the learning phase or during the test phase. Mm-hmm. So one thing that could be happening is that observing the gestures during training might be prompting people to produce more gestures at test and producing more gestures at test would be hypothesized to improve the performance at test. Mm -hmm. And although we got that for the free recall phase, so that first test phase where they were just asked, um, tell me all the word pairs, um, what do you remember? That's what we got. So observing the gestures was beneficial in turn that was um, that the people who observed the gestures produced more gestures at test, and in turn, those who produced more gestures at test recalled more words. So that's what we expected. Mm-hmm. But we actually got the opposite effect for the cued um, recall, and particularly for the Japanese to English cued recall. Mm. So the same thing that um, those who observed the gestures produced uh, during training, those who observed the gestures during training produced more gestures at test, but that was actually detrimental to their recall. So the more gestures produced, the worse they did at test. And that was so bizarre. That, that was, so we were not that, expecting that at all. So then that's kind of doing the opposite of what we were talking about before, where focusing right. on the gesture is actually pulling away from the cognition, possibly. Yeah, if, yeah. And I mean, we don't know why that happened at this point. Um, it's possible. So there's, there's a couple of things there. One thing that a difference between the free recall and that cued recall is that the free recall was open-ended. So the more people were talking, the more opportunity they'd have to gesture. Mm -hmm. So perhaps the positive effect that we were expecting for the free recall was simply an artifact of the fact that those who were gesturing more were recalling more because both of them were happening for a longer time. If you're, if you're talking for longer, you've got more of an opportunity to, to both recall and to gesture. Whereas for the cued test, it was a very fixed amount of time. There were 10 words, and they were asked all those 10 words. Hmm. So it's possible that that detrimental effect may well have been there for free recall, except that it was masked by the fact that um, they could talk for longer and therefore gesture and recall more. Did you do any interviews with the participants? Um, any like, qualitative data? No, we didn't, unfortunately. Um, and there's a couple of reasons for that there. Uh, firstly, limited scope, I guess, for an honours project. So this mm. was already very big by the standards of an honours project, having the two time points um, and a you know, reasonably um, decent sample size there. Um, but also, this unexpected finding we only found after the fact. Right. Um it would have been great if we'd seen this at the time and been able to interview the participants, but it's um, pretty much forbidden to analyze the data as you go um, right. with scientific method. And so we didn't know about this until afterwards, and then it's too late. If this was a PhD project, you would have you would have advised the person to do interviews maybe before if this was and a after? P- yeah, and certainly then there's scope to run another study as well. Right. So the great thing about a PhD is you can, if you find something unexpected, you can follow it up. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I can now follow this up, um, but not within the scope of that particular project. It wasn't possible to do just because of the time frame. Um, but absolutely, for a PhD project, I think it's always a great idea to um, to to talk with your um, participants, get a bit more qualitative data, um, and also then, yep, following it up's um, 
uh, you know, absolutely the best way. So when did you start seeing that it wasn't lining up with your hypothesis? When Because you, you were doing a lot of uh, number crunching here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, and only did, afterwards. When... So we tend to, we, you know, I mean, it's always my aim to train my students in the best scientific method possible. So I don't want the running of the study to be influenced by what they think is happening. And, you know, right. that may well be unavoidable, but what we do ideally and what Aya did in this case is you run the study, then you transcribe and code your data, and then you analyze it. And it was only in that analysis stage that we saw that there were some unexpected things going on. When when that happens, I, I'm interested in this because, uh, you know, I think there's a lot of people that do not do it the right way. <laughs> Absolutely. They, they, and um, yeah, they kind of cook the books a bit. So I guess the question is when you're doing it the right way and you're finding that the de- the data is not really matching your hypothesis, what's the thought process as far as publication? Because I would say that this this is a very valuable publication. And like you said, you're giving you know future directions. It seems like people are, are very afraid to publish something that doesn't match their hypothesis. But in where I, from, from, from my perspective, I think it, it's very useful and mm. it, it's very good, but I guess some people are sort of afraid, oh, well, this is, this is, this can't be published. What, what's your, what's your view on that? And like, how do you advise, stu- like, w- is there a point where, okay, well, this can't be published or is it always where, okay, we can publish this? Like where, why did, why are people so afraid um, yeah. when this happens? Yeah. That's, that's a fantastic question, and I completely agree with you on all points. Um, I think um, as long as you've got something interesting to say, it should be publishable, and you shouldn't be um, biased by your own um, predispositions or I guess by your own biases, for want of a better word, um, as to what, what would be publishable. So I think sometimes people get very wedded to their particular theory, and if they run a study that is contrary to that, they don't want it published because they don't want their theory debunked. But uh-huh. I would say science is more important than your personal attachment to your theory. Um, so you should publish it. The only time things might not be publishable is if in that process you say, oh, okay, something weird happened there. And in retrospect, it's because we did something methodologically that we shouldn't have, that we didn't mm-hmm. realize at the time, um, or something that means that the study wasn't actually doing what it should have been doing. Um, it's another unfortunate, um, uh, I guess, attribute of the scientific community that it's quite difficult to publish null results. So if, as long as something's significant, even if it's in the direction you wouldn't expect, then it's publishable. But a lot of the time a study will you'll run a study and you won't get any significant effects. And unfortunately, for better or for worse, that's very difficult to publish. I wish it wasn't so because I think the side effect of that is people keep running the same sorts of studies, not realizing that someone else has already done it and mm-hmm. not got anything. And so they're wasting everybody's time, everybody's resources. Um, but certainly I think publishing findings just because they're not what you expected them to be. Well, I, I would say do that anyway. You owe it to science. Were, were the other two members of your team, how did it seems like you have a very uh healthy outlook on this where like you said you don't get too attached to theory did, did were the other two members of your team disappointed or were they were they sort of they found it was a good uh result that they did find some yeah. significant event so for an honest student themselves 
the main thing they're thinking about at the time is not the subsequent publication. It's just their thesis. They want to get through the year. The honours year is very difficult um, and they just want to write a good thesis. So that's the main focus there. And, yes, I was um, just happy that she had something that you know interesting to talk about. Um, and for Elizabeth as well, she was probably less invested in specifically what this project showed because she was sort of co-supervising the student, but, but she's also got a very healthy attitude towards science. Um, and, is, yeah, she was also just fascinated that this was showing something uh, so intriguing. What's your what what's your requirement as an associate professor as far as output? Do you have a specific number of papers you need to publish every year or a certain no. number of papers you need to have in press or there's nothing like no, that? No, there's no, there's no specific numbers. There was at one point um, in, you know, Australian academia talk of being research active, which means that you have to have at least one publication a year, but that's an absolute bare minimum. Um, one publication a year as um, as a academic would be, you know, might keep you employed if you already had a job, but unfortunately wouldn't get you a job to start with. Um, but that being said, beyond that, there's no minimum requirements. And there's, it also varies depending on the journal. So um, some journals are much, much harder to get into. And the very high-ranking journals, for example, might require multiple experiments per paper. And so if I published one paper in a top journal that had four experiments in it, that would not be viewed in the same way as a smaller paper um, that only had one study in it. So this, um, this journal that this um, article is published in, it's a good journal. It's a good sort of middle-level journal, um, but it's not one of those top journals where you'd, you'd require multiple papers and it's much, much, sorry, multiple studies within the paper and much, much more prestigious. So no, there's no specific number of publications and not all publications are equal. Do you have a goal for your own output? Um, only based on my own benchmarks. So I haven't been told any externally by the university that specifically I need to get but I like to get at the very least half a dozen a year. In the past few years, I've managed more along the nine-ish, nine to 10-ish mark. Um, that makes me happy. This year, I think things are probably not going to look so good because everything slowed down this year. Um, but that's my usual benchmark for myself. Well, th th does that mean, well, things slow down this year? So does that mean it's going to affect something that's going to be published next year and then two years from now, like you're more on like yeah. a cycle, right? Yeah, so that's, you, that's well, it. So this year, if, um, things are being written up more slowly, but that's written up studies that had already been conducted. But the other thing that slowed down is running studies because we have a ban at the moment on face-to-face -face, um, testing. So we can't run our participants face-to-face -face at the moment. So that's also slowed down. So it's going to have repercussions um, going forwards. Well, of the nine per year, how many of those are you fir first author on? No, not I'm not normally, and it's that's an um, artifact of the way that I work. And different academics work in different ways. So I tend to work in teams. I collaborate a lot. Um, gesture might be my main field, but I work a lot with people in other fields of psychology and in education, and we'll work together as a team. And so we would take it in turns as to who's the first author and. I also tend – I almost always, and this paper is an exception, but I almost always say 
if it's a, if it's the student's paper, they're the first author. Now, that's unquestionably the case for a master's student such as yourself or a PhD student. They clearly, they're always going to be the first author. If it's an honours student, I would normally always put them first as well. The only reason I didn't this time was I, uh, um, for her own personal and professional reasons, was not interested in being involved in the publication process, so I did all of it. Mm, and so okay. at that point, I'm the first author. But if she'd had um, more input into the writing up of it, um, then she would still be the first author then. So as far as who's the first author, yes, I would not normally be the first author. The way I see it is um, uh, I've got a job and I've got a good job that I'm happy with. <laughs> yeah, I could get promoted again and that would be fantastic, but I don't need that. Whereas someone like yourself or a student, they need the first author publications. I'm just, I'm going to put them first. Now, what about with our our particular project where it's it's myself, you, and Maria? Is there how does it work between second and third author? Is that I was normally, curious about about that. Yeah, normally Maria would go second, and I'd go third because she's the primary supervisor. Okay. Um, and so, although that's a funny thing, that in different fields, sometimes the last author is seen as the most prestigious, <laughs> but not typically in psychology. So in psychology, it tends to go in order of the authors. Um, okay. And so for, for our stuff, it would be it would be you followed by Maria followed by me. That would only change if for some reason there was a very different um, contribution. So if there was a paper, which, and I can't see this happening, but if for some reason Maria felt that she couldn't contribute to a paper um, to the extent that she would normally and so I took over, then that might swap. But I, you know, I, I don't envisage that happening. All right. Well, to, to wrap it up, um, again, the, the name of the paper is effects, The Effects of Observing and Producing Gestures on Japanese Word Learning. So you give some advice for future directions. You said future research should replicate the current findings, but include a condition in which participants are instructed to gesture during learning, but with no instructor gestures to mimic to enable a direct comparison of gesture production, gesture observation, and the cumulative benefit of gesture production and observation together. So you're saying the person should create their own gesture to link with their That's own, right. their own uh, association with the word. Mm, absolutely. So what we showed was that reproducing the gesture had no beneficial effect beyond observing the gesture, but that doesn't mean that producing gestures is not beneficial in and of itself. It may be more beneficial beyond no gestures whatsoever, and we weren't able to look at that in this study. So there would ideally be a fourth condition, so there'd be one with no gestures, one with only observing, one with only producing, and then one with both observing and producing. And the condition with only um producing gestures we didn't have in this study see that would be interesting yeah if you have to create your own gesture right if that yeah. would impact are there future plans to, to do this study um that will depend on me having another student who wishes to look at um, foreign language learning because i am embarrassingly monolingual <laughs> and so i'm not capable unfortunately of running such a study myself but i would absolutely be interested in doing that if i had a student or a collaborator who um was interested in looking at foreign foreign language learning then i would be looking to replicate this with that added condition in there okay i guess a uh, last question um something i try to ask uh, everybody is any advice i mean you're extremely busy so i guess you've become a master at, at time management 
Uh, has it always been like this? Do you have any advice for people how to become better researchers, better writers, uh, better academics? Writing, I think, is just practice. So to become a better writer, you need to read a lot and write a lot. Um, and it's a process that's ongoing. So my PhD supervisor, we worked together for years after I finished my PhD and even after I was an academic in my own right and had my own continuing position, he would read my work and rip it to shreds and completely rewrite it because he just had decades on me of um, experience in writing and he was better at it than me. So as far as writing goes, I think it's practice. It's yeah, reading a lot so you can get exposed to different writing styles and develop your own writing style and then just the practice writing it. Um, as far as being um, a good academic goes, I think that's probably more broad. And there are so many components to that that it's difficult to pin down so carefully. I think you did hit the nail on the head when you talked about time management. I think that's crucially important. Um, the hours that you put into academia aren't what's important. It's how you manage your time and making sure that you know what to prioritize. Um, and it's very easy to get bogged down in um, administrative tasks um, and unfortunately, a lot of the time those have to be done. There's no way out of it, but making sure you do make time for the research and, do, and don't get, get bogged down um, in, the, in the admin. Well, uh, thank you so much for your time. Again, the paper is the effects of, of, uh, the effects of Observing and Producing Gestures on Japanese Word Learning. And it's uh, Dr. Naomi Sweller, the, the Associate Professor of uh, Psychology at Macquarie University. Thank you so much for coming on the program. You're very welcome. My pleasure. Thank you again for listening to today's episode. If you'd like to contact the show, please send us an email, lostincitations at gmail.com. Please like us on Facebook, facebook.com slash lostincitations. It also helps greatly if you share the show on your social media platform of choice. And if you're feeling extra generous, please leave us a five-star rating and favorable review on iTunes. This will help us tremendously. One final thing, and maybe most important, if you enjoy listening to the show, please tell a friend or colleague. People often talk about their favorite podcasts, so let people know that you're listening. Thanks again, and we'll talk to you next week.